Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Gunther Wagner. He is Alison Richard Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and Adjunct Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology and Reproductive Sciences at Yale University and also Adjunct Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Wayne State University. His research interest is the evolution of gene regulation as it pertains to the origin of evolutionary novelty. So, Dr. Wagner, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you for having me. Okay, so how did gene regulation evolve? Well, um, of course, those are two questions, right? The one is how gene regulation originated and how once there is gene regulation, it evolves. And um, I think it's fair to say that we know more about uh, how gene regulation evolved once it uh, existed, like we have it in all uh, organisms alive today. And uh, so uh, gene regulation can actually uh, uh, change in evolution on various levels, but the best studied area is where uh, the control of transcription, meaning where the information in the genome uh, written into DNA uh, is transcribed into another molecule that's called the messenger RNA. And how and when this is happening, this is called the uh, transcriptional control of gene expression. And uh, <clears throat> the uh, idea is that there are parts in the genome that determine whether um, uh, uh, proteins that uh, initiate and uh, continue the uh, transcription of these genes get recruited to a particular part of the genome. And uh, these uh, so-called cis-regulatory elements, meaning DNA sequences that attract those uh, proteins, they can change and thereby change their uh, affinity to different uh, uh, so-called transcription factor proteins. So that's the main way how people think about the evolution of gene regulation. Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, there is, of course, also another possibility that seems to be happening, but at a lower rate, namely that the proteins that control the uh, expression of genes themselves change, uh, namely by changing their protein uh, properties and how they interact with other such proteins. And that would be called, you know, transcription factor protein evolution. But, you know, admittedly, that is a process that is not as often found, but it does exist and it may play a special role in the evolution of, of organisms. Mm -hmm. And why is gene, uh, gene regulation important in evolution? It's important because it turns out that uh, a lot of the evolutionary changes that we observe or can infer for higher organisms like mammals and uh, humans and, and so on uh, are actually based on uh, the, uh, a change in the time and intensity of uh, gene expression rather than the evolution of new genes. That also happens, you know, the new genes arise and, uh, and uh, you, know, you get uh, new proteins that contribute to uh, development and physiology, uh, but <clears throat> the, the, the primary uh, mode of evolutionary change of animals and plants seems to be uh, changing the uh, pattern of expression, where it's expressed, when uh, genes are expressed um, to modulate uh, developmental and physiological processes. So it is uh, considered the major mode of uh, the way of organisms change at the genetic level. Mm -hmm. Are there evolutionary phenomena that we can understand better by studying gene regulation? Well, yeah, that's... Uh, and, and most of the uh, morphological changes that, that happen are, can actually be traced back to uh, changes in, in, in gene regulation. Um, uh, for instance, uh, uh, one where, uh, for instance, digits uh, change their morphology can be traced back to uh, different uh, patterns of gene regulation, meaning that certain uh, uh, transcription factor proteins are either expressed in one digit or the other, which then you know, changes whether 
uh, digit is growing more or less or, uh, or you know getting thicker or having some other shape um, uh, and so that's uh, that you actually find it all over the place Mm -hmm. And does gene regulation influence in any way how evolution unfolds over time? Well, it, I would say it's uh, it's the way one of the major ways how uh, evolutionary change uh, is realized. It's it's not so much an, an independent factor that sort of influences evolution. I think it is one of the major ways in which evolution unfolds and is happening. Uh, so in that respect, it is uh, uh, at the very core of evolutionary change. Mm -hmm. but, but is evolution constrained by gene regulation in any way? I mean, the sort of paths it can take? Well, I think that uh, depends on, on, uh, on, on, on the particular examples. Um, uh, right now, I, I cannot immediately think of examples that would uh, very strongly constrain uh, evolutionary change um, because it turns out that uh, gene regulation, at least the transcriptional regulation, is um, in different parts of the body is controlled by different uh, so-called cis-regulatory elements so that you can change the gene expression in one part of the body without affecting other parts. Um, of course, as long as, uh, let's say, fore and hind limb uh, development is uh, controlled by uh, the same gene and the same cis-regulator elements, uh, the fore limb and hind limb evolution uh, uh, remains constrained if you want to uh, correlate it. And only if and when um, uh, a gene regulatory logic or network is changed so that the forelimb and the hindlimb is under the control of different genetic elements, then radical differences in the forelimb and hindlimb can uh, evolve, as we see, let's say, in the in chickens or in like, birds in general. You know, where the forelimb specializes for flight and and uh, hindlimb for running or you know just grabbing, um, or between uh, in, in bats when forelimb and hindlimb uh, and so on. So yes, there are can be constraints uh, depending on what the pre, pre, prior evolutionary histories of these um, characters. Uh, but there are ways of how these constraints can be overcome. For instance, by the uh, origin of new gene regulatory elements like the one uh, we are talking about. And the interesting thing is that completely new elements like this can uh, arise from um, so-called transposable elements. Uh, those are um, um, uh, DNA segments that most likely uh, come from viruses and that uh, get integrated into the genome and can uh, uh, replicate, that means they make copies of themselves and insert in other parts of the uh, genome. And if they uh, happen to come into the uh, neighborhood of a particular gene, they can uh, create new let, uh, uh, opportunities for uh, gene regulation. So <clears throat> uh, uh, as, as always in evolution, it's always a, 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 a interplay between constraints uh, and uh, opportunities, right? If you don't have um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, transposable elements in your genome, then the opportunity, opportunities to get new, uh, create new um, uh, cis-regulator elements, these gene switches, uh, is less than if you have lots of them, um, uh, which of course it, it itself is a, a two-edged sword, because if you have lots of these transposable elements in your genome, they also can do a lot of damage. Um, and increase the mutation rate. And uh, probably it's not an uh, accident that uh, mammals are known, and for instance, humans, that only 2% of our DNA in the genome actually code for gene products, uh, you know, proteins. Uh, the rest, <clears throat> about 50%, is still recognizable uh, as former transposable elements or as transposable elements themselves. Um, and maybe another 40% um, are uh, uh, not coding for uh, proteins and not recognizable, but probably just uh, degenerated forms of transposable elements. So, I mean, we are over 90% of 
our genome is consists of these uh, um, apparently parasitic elements, but we also, by having them, we also have the opportunity to uh, innovate uh, new ways of regulating our genes. So, uh, at the one hand, we pay a price for them by high mutation rate, uh, maybe even cancer rates and so on. But on the other hand, uh, it also gives us an opportunity, us, you know, it's anthropomorphically spoken, uh, but uh, um, gives our lineage uh, um, together with other mammals that have also uh, genomes of similar size, uh, many opportunities to uh, come up with new ways of regulating our uh, genes or the expression of our genes. Mm -hmm. And how can we understand phenomena like pleiotropy and polygyny from an evolutionary perspective? Are there particular reasons why it is the case that we have genes that encode for multiple traits and traits that are encoded by multiple genes? Well, pleiotropy, uh, meaning that uh, the, the same gene or the same gene locus uh, plays a role in, in different parts of our uh, bodies, um, I think is primarily a consequence of the fact that we are multicellular organisms. Uh, and so our body is composed of cells and each of the cells has potentially exactly the same uh, uh, genes as, as the other cells. So any gene that is not explicitly uh, turned off in one part of the body and only expressed in another part of body, so uh, will have pleiotropic effects, meaning that if it mutates, it will affect uh, um, all the uh, cells in which this gene is, is expressed, right? Uh, so, so pleiotropy uh, simply comes from the fact that we are multicellular organisms and multicellular organisms means we are composed of cells that all have more or less the same genetic information. Um, the question why we have polygyny, meaning that uh, one and the same uh, organismal trait uh, is influenced by a large number of uh, genes uh, is uh, uh, due to the fact that, you know, any uh, you know, recognizable part of our body, let's say the eye or the uh, skeleton or, you know, the, the uh, digestive tract is the uh, result of a long and complicated uh, developmental uh, process in which, um, uh, the, in which many, many genes play a role, right? And so if uh, many genes are necessary or need to be engaged at different stages in the development, it means that mutations of um, all of those genes potentially influence uh, this process. So um, polygyny is just a consequence of the fact that development is a complex process that needs the activity of many genes. Mm -hmm. What is the relationship between development and evolution? Well, um, I mean, if we talk about multicellular organisms and I'm a zoologist, so the primary uh, uh, examples that I'm thinking of uh, are animals. Um, and of course, there are most of the biosphere is made up of single celled organisms and uh, bacteria and viruses and, and fungi and so on. Um, but you know, if, if I speak as a as a as a as a, as a zoologist, <coughs> and uh, then evolution of animals um, uh, is the evolution of the development of their bodies, right? So, uh, in each generation, each individual uh, arises from an egg cell from the mother and a sperm cell from the father that you know contribute you know half of the genes that we have in our cells. Um, and um, um, and and the body that we recognize as let's say as a human being or a, or a dog or a chicken or whatever um, is uh, the result of a uh, developmental process uh, that comes from a single cell, namely the fertilized egg cell, making many cells. These cells then fold and organize themselves into different parts. And, uh, and so uh, viewing organisms as the result of development uh, immediately 
leads to the conclusion that the evolution of these bodies has to be the evolution of the development of those bodies. So the evolution of bodies is the develop is the evolution of development. And in order to want, if you want to understand how bodies evolve, we need to understand how their development is evolving. Mm -hmm. And what are evolutionary novelties? Ah, that is a difficult question, and you probably will get as many uh, different answers uh, uh, as you interview people. Um, and uh, but I can give you my uh, specific uh, perspective on it, right? Um, so uh, let me go back a little bit and tell. Uh, and uh, re recapitulate what kind of processes we study in evolutionary biology. So at the one hand, we have, uh, we understand pretty well the evolution of what we call adaptations. You know, um, uh, polar bears have, uh, you know, a white fur for, you know, uh, camouflage and also for thermoregulatory reasons, uh, while in the uh, temperate regions, the bears have black or brown fur, and that's a clear um, uh, example of, uh, of adaptation. Or you have uh, uh, birds who use uh, seeds of different hardness, then the shape of the beaks uh, will uh, match the, the mode of feeding, right? So that's, so you have in both of these cases, you have a character, let's say the fur or the beak, and the, uh, um, this body part then gets modified uh, depending on what uh, ecological uh, constraints or uh, necessities uh, exist in the life of these animals, right? So that would be a typical uh, example of adaptation. Most adaptations that we understand are modifications of things that are already there before the modification happens. The other uh, kind of process that we study very intensely in evolutionary biology is the origin of species. Um, that means that uh, um, that a population of uh, organisms uh, give rise to two different uh, populations that then have a quasi-independent evolutionary history. That is what speciation means. And an important intellectual pr uh, advance in the 20th century was to realize that the evolution of adaptations and the origin of species are actually two different kinds of questions and actually driven by quite different uh, population genetic mechanisms. So we have to under so adaptation is not the same as the speciation, speciation is not the same as adaptation. They can interact at certain levels, but those are fundamentally different kinds of processes. Now, if we come to innovation, my argument is that innovations are exactly those evolutionary processes that uh, create a new body part that then can be subject to uh, adaptive modification. For instance, the origin of hair. Uh, hair only exists in, uh, in mammals, right? And, uh, and uh, our ancestors that we have in common with the reptiles, um, we don't know exactly how their uh, skin looked like, but we are pretty sure they didn't have hair, they didn't have feathers. Um, uh, maybe they had uh, uh, scales, but even that is not sure, uh, certain. Uh, so that is one example of a, of a novelty. And there are animals that don't have distinct anatomical eyes, and then eyes evolve. And then, you know, once you have an eye, you can adapt it to, you know, uh, you know, high light intensity, low light intensity, higher acuity of, of vision, uh, and so on. Those are then the evolutionary modifications of a thing. So to me, an innovation is the origin of a new part of the body that then can acquire particular um, uh, functional roles. Okay, um, so, and that again, uh, like in the case of adaptation and, and speciation, to understand um, innovations is, is quite a different, uh, a quite a different kind of question to answer. Uh, you have to, to pursue a different research uh, program in order to understand innovations, then you have to pursue in order to understand adaptations. So for an adapt, uh, for the evolution of um, novelties, and you know, I think maybe the, the simplest or the uh, clearest example of uh, innovations are new cell types. 
uh, you know, like uh, uh, light sensory cells that uh, evolve from from epithelial cells, from uh, skin cells, for instance. Um, uh, in order to understand the origin of a new cell type, uh, uh, you have to understand the process by which the new cell type is able to control the expression of its genes differently from other cells, right? So, so you know, either by changes to the transcription factors or new uh, cis regulatory elements and so on. And so, how that in detail um, uh, is happening, I think we don't know yet. We have, you know, good guesses of that lead our uh, research into it. Um, but uh, you know, there are no simple and straightforward and well-established uh, uh, models yet uh, of how that actually happened. Mm -hmm. Since we started by talking about gene regulation, does it have anything to do with the evolution of novel traits? Right. So uh, my argument is that uh, that in order to have novel um, uh, parts of the body, uh, you can only develop new parts of the body if you find new ways of regulating genes that make this part of the body. Right. So abstractly spoken and you know in the case of, of new cell types clearly uh, a new cell type only exists if the um, expression of genes that actually do physiological work like enzymes and uh, uh, extracellular matrix proteins and, and so on um, are expressed differentially it means different from um, uh, the exp their expression in other uh, uh, cells which means the origin of a of gene regulate gene regulatory machinery that allows that is synonymous at the molecular level with the uh, origin of novelties. Mm -hmm. uh, what is a complex organism, uh, biologically speaking, and how do complex organisms evolve? Well, uh, again, uh, that I'm not sure there is a consensus uh, opinion uh, about that because at one level, you could make an, uh, a defensible argument that all organisms are complex, right? Even bacterium uh, like E. coli, you know, it has a very complex metabolic machinery and uh, and so on. And uh, um, but <clears throat> uh, conventionally, what we mean by a complex organism is one that uh, consists of many differentiated parts, right? So if you compare my uh, favorite uh, uh, simple uh, uh, animal, which is called the Trichoplax adherens, uh, which is uh, looks like a, the name actually already tells it. It looks like a hairy uh, plaque on the on the surface of a of an aquarium uh, uh, pane, um, <clears throat> and. This organism is an animal, it is quite clear, but it doesn't have a head, it doesn't even have a gut. Uh, it only has a cell layer on top and a cell layer on, uh, underneath. Um, it can do uh, digestion, but only by making a hollow structure temporarily and then digests its food and then it uses the same cells to crawl further. So, so this is a, a simple organism that has about five to 30 different cell types. Um, no uh, definite body axis, so there's not a definite end, uh, you know, uh, front end and the, and the hind end, there's no internal organ uh, uh, in there. And in contrast, a complex organism like um, a vertebrate, or you know, let's take human as an, as an exemplar, um, you know, at the cell level, there are at least 500 different uh, cell types, uh, probably much many more. Uh, this number of 500 is based on you know, conventional histological or you know, 19th century uh, techniques and you know, with modern techniques it probably will increase at least by a factor of four my, my, is my estimation. So, so uh, compared to a tricoplex, uh, you know, we have at least a hundredfold more uh, uh, cell types. We have a, a very definite uh, body organization uh, with your head and uh, you know, uh, you know uh, limbs and a gut and a lung and a heart and, and all of the nice things that we le uh, learn in anatomy class. And, uh, and the very uh, uh, fact that you know, so-called complex organisms are 
composed of many different uh, individuated parts is what we mean by a complex organism. And how it originates is, of course, by the same processes that we discussed before, namely the uh, evolutionary novelties, the meaning that the origin of new individualized parts of the body. How that is happening at the molecular or population genetic level, I think that is still a very uh, unsettled um, research question. And, uh, uh, you know, I can speculate about it, uh, but you wouldn't, you shouldn't take it as a, as a definite answer. Uh, uh, um, as, 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 a, as, as a definite answer for, for this uh, research program. Mm-hmm. And what about functional specialization? What it is and how does it evolve? Well, I mean, uh, functional specialization is the, um, is the, uh, the mirror image of uh, morphological uh, specialization because, you know, once you think about my examples of a differentiated complex organisms, all of the parts that I mentioned uh, only exist because each of them is performing a a specialized function, uh, you know, the brain, obviously, and the eyes for visual and the ears for you know, sound perception and, and so on. Um, so there's a certain, you know, complementarity between morphological or cell biological specialization and, uh, and uh, functional specialization. Now, that's sort of the, the, the first uh, level. Uh, uh, answer to it. It's a little bit more complicated than uh, that because uh, uh, body parts, once they exist, can change their function, but still be the same thing. You know, like you know, the uh, the limbs of of, uh, of tetrapods can are you know in were initially uh, structured to support. Uh, the body on the on the on, on, on the ground, but they can also be used to eventually for flying or for swimming or for playing the piano. Piano. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, once body parts exist and have established their identity, they are not necessarily um, uh, tied to a particular function. And even that is sort of different because certain parts don't change their function, like the heart <laughs> has been a, a blood pumping organ. And I'm not aware of any example where the heart stopped being used for that purpose. Right. So it's um, it's a question of, you know, how central and how well <clears throat> a particular part and function is integrated into the whole um, organismal context. And uh, uh, so, so that's the that um, uh, that's the reason why I like to talk about uh, character identity as a developmental morphological fact, and um, and uh, functional specialization as um, as something that hap- that is as attached to it, uh, because uh, a morphological and developmental identity can be more stable than a functional role, right? So functional role is to some degree context dependent, basically what how you use it. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it, maybe a more uh, dramatic example of uh, change of function is the lung, right? So which you know we recognize as a respiratory organ in um, in uh, bony vertebrates. <clears throat> but uh, once you have a lung and you fill it with air, and if you are a, an aquatic organism like the fishes. Uh, the very fact that you have air in these parts of the body also uh, influences your buoyancy, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so then, uh, uh, if you are not depending on air breathing anymore, you can actually turn the lung into a buoyancy organ, which in fishes is called uh, uh, the swimming, the swim bladder. Right? And it completely loses its function for respiration, and now is only there for uh, the purpose of regulating buoyancy. Um, so, so that is another example. So, uh, swim bladder and lung, genetically and uh, and developmentally, is the same thing. It looks different, has different functions. This is another example of how uh, the function of an of a body part can change in evolution. Right. So, in your work, you talk about the concept of evolvability. Could you explain it? 
Yeah, okay. Uh, you have hard questions uh, for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the point here. <laughs> <laughs> so evolvability is the is is, a, is the idea where you know originated from the from the idea that uh, um, okay let me let me start uh, from from the basics right so yeah. uh, the the current model of evolutionary change is largely based on the idea that genetic changes can arise randomly in the genome and they either have a negative effect and you know selection will eliminate them on average or if they have a beneficial effect then uh, uh, natural selection may preserve them it's not guaranteed but there's a certain chance that you know sort of the better genes uh, get conserved and and that's how adaptive evolution is is happening so how, how bodies become better in what they are doing and now then uh, people had a, had a brilliant idea and said, well, if this Darwinian process of mutation and selection is such a powerful process that it can produce, you know, complex organisms like ourselves, uh, why don't we use it in uh, engineering, right? Mm -hmm. So why don't we make um, uh, better machines by just mutating them and uh, selecting the best machines? And that's actually something that people have uh, started doing in the 1970s and 80s. And, uh, and uh, the interesting, intellectually interesting result of those was that uh, it can work, but it doesn't always work. Um, and uh, maybe the most uh, clear uh, example are uh, attempts to evolve uh, computer programs by random mutation, random change and uh, and selection. Just, you know, you test each program, you mute them, you run them on the computer. If they work or work better, then you maintain them and then you mute it again. Now, what people learned uh, when they did this is that it's, uh, whether that works or not critically depends on how uh, random change is introduced into, let's say, the computer program or into a, into a, you know, some physical machine. As so people also uh, did this with physical machines like uh, jets or you know, um, uh, airplane wing profiles and things like that. And it turned out uh, that it is very critically depends on how this random, pro uh, uh, how the introduction of random change is done in order to have any chance to produce better outcomes, right? Which, you know, if you come back to your question, it means that uh, uh, evolvability is not guaranteed by random change and selection. Random change needs to be done in the right way uh, in order to have any chance of being successful. And evolvability is a term that uh, sort of tries to measure or reflect the fact that some systems are better in uh, producing uh, better outcomes uh, by random change than others. So that's, uh, I think, the, the, the best way to introduce the intellectual history of that very idea. Now, whether and to what degree real organisms differ in their um, evolvability is uh, is still subject to to uh, uh, you know, vigorous uh, research, um, and I think the the problem for biologists to recognize that evolvability is a, an issue at all is that we usually, uh, right, as as zoologists or neontologists or working with living animals, uh, we are studying the winners of the evolutionary game. We usually don't know which organisms did not make it uh, to, uh, because that's the paleontology department <laughs> that is studying those animals. And, you know, admittedly, you know, we don't know too much about these organisms. We don't know about anything about their genetics. At the best, uh, we can know something about the skeletons and their bodies, which is a lot and this is important to know. Um, but since we biologists or neontologists, we, as we should call ourselves, um, studying the winners of the evolutionary process, we don't even recognize that um, uh, evolution 
may not happen efficiently because we only study the ones that did evolve efficiently, right? So it's only through the, um, the detour over um, you know, evolutionary engineering and evolutionary computer science, um, it became clear that evolvability itself is an, is an issue uh, to understand. And in a way, it is a uh, uh, the counterpart or the mirror image of um, of constraints. Right? Constraints are the things that cannot easily evolve or are, uh, decrease evolvability of certain parts of the body. And uh, and evolvability is the opposite. It's the opportunity uh, to change or the uh, ability to produce uh, potentially uh, adaptive and uh, functional uh, variants or mutations. Mm -hmm. So you also study pregnancy. How did pregnancy evolve? Well, uh, so if we if we say pregnancy, of course we um, t um, talk about many biologically quite different uh, phenomena, right? Uh, usually, the term that is used is viviparity, meaning that you know an, a female gives rise to um, uh, to to uh, life young rather than laying eggs and then uh, incubating them and then the, the, the neonates or the hatchlings are getting out of the, the eggshell. And that is actually a phenomenon that uh, happens quite often. Uh, in many animals have independently evolved uh, the ability to uh, give rise to, to, to life offspring. And if you look in particular, so, so most of the work on pregnancy, of course, is uh, with mammals, yeah, because you know, we are mammals, so we study ourselves and we study the reproduction of farm animals because that's commercially important. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, but uh, the origin of uh, pregnancy in mammals is a unique event, and so it's hard to know why it evolved in mammals. So our information about when it's uh, preferred to uh, evolve uh, pregnancy comes from reptiles, uh, so snakes and uh, lizards and so on. And there it seems to be the case that uh, uh, populations that live in uh, higher elevations and in colder climates are more likely to um, to develop, to retain the eggs in their body rather than laying them and then incubating them outside. And, um, and so I think one of the uh, driving factors in the evolution of uh, intrauterine development uh, is uh, the ability to control the environment of the developing uh, embryo uh, more uh, precisely uh, than uh, if you lay the egg and then either expose it to the environment or you have to regulate their environment by you know breeding up breathing, brooding uh, on it uh, and, and, and so on. So so from an ecological evolutionary point of view, that's probably one of the driving factors that leads to evolution of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. uh, in the context of the origin or the evolutionary origin of pregnancy, you've studied uh, endometrial stromal cells. So what are these and what were what was the role that they played here? Right. Uh, so uh, the endometrial stromal cells, or the deciduous cell, is a cell that evolved uh, in the context of the evolution of mammalian, or let's say, uh, placental uh, uh, pregnancy. And, uh, and there we have to uh, realize that uh, mammalian pregnancy is quite special compared to most of the reptilian uh, pregnancy. And um, so the reptilian, or in the simplest case, um, viviparity in reptiles uh, simply consists of keeping the egg inside the, the mother and then let the, the hatchling either hatch inside the, the uterus and then it crawls out of the cloaca or you lay the egg shortly before the, the animal is actually crawling out. This is, for instance, the case in, uh, in a, a European lizard called Sotoka vivipara. Uh, where uh, they have, where, you know, it's primarily um, uh, egg retention that's happening. <clears throat> now, uh, a big difference 
in uh, mammalian pregnancy, or let's say placental uh, pregnancy, is that the uh, separation between the embryo and the mother gets uh, lost, so the eggshell gets removed, and the uh, embryo in many cases uh, deeply embeds uh, into the uh, tissue of the of the mother. So this is what's called embryo implantation, or, uh, or and and this allows for a much more intimate relationship between the placenta, meaning the fetus, and the mother, and um, and sort of placental mammal also uh, uh, pregnancy is characterized by the development of those uh, of placenta. Now, um, now think about it uh, from the uh, uh, point of view of the mother's organism or the mother's cells, right? So there is a, an embryo coming down uh, the tubes and uh, starts digging into the uh, tissue of the mother. Now, from the standpoint of the cells of the mother, having this embryo there is uh, what uh, he or she is doing. The embryo uh, is causing a wound, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, having a wound, whether there's infection or not, uh, 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 naturally leads, would lead to, um, to inflammation. And we know that the early stages of embryo implantation, even in humans, is actually a process uh, that includes a lot of uh, inflammatory uh, processes. Now, so what we discovered uh, a few years ago is that uh, in, the, um, in the marsupials, so the uh, sister group of mammals to the placental mammals, uh, they have a very short plus, uh, 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 very short pregnancy and even within a two-week uh, pregnancy they have uh, a very short uh, physical attachment between the fetus and the mother. It's about two days or two to three days. And during this um, attachment, the, uh, the uterus uh, is increasing progressively the um, expression of uh, so-called uh, inflammatory mediators, meaning genes that have to do with uh, inflammation. Um, while in the in the uh, uh, in the eutherians or the placental mammals, after this initial in inflammation, inflammation is actually turned off, and uh, and allows the an extended um, uh, gestation time. So basically, um, the mother allows the um, the embryo to sustain a wound and maintain the wound open for the time of the pregnancy. Now, in order for that to happen, you have to change the way the <clears throat> tissue reacts to injury, um, at least as long as the, the embryo is there and the hormones are the right ones. And, <clears throat> and uh, our uh, results suggest that um, the, and the, the decidual cell evolved in order to allow this switch from the uh, inflammatory reaction to the presence of an embryo to um, uh, a state in which this uh, open wound can be maintained. Um, and uh, in order for that to be possible, you need a, a cell or some kind of cellular interaction network that suppresses the uh, the inflammatory reaction, because if inflammation could go on unbridled, um, it would lead to the destruction of the embryo, because there would be a certain immune cells would come in and, and destroy the embryo, even in the absence of a of a adaptive immune uh, reaction. So our uh, interpretation, our meaning, you know, my my collaborators and I uh, think that uh, the situal cell the stromal cell <clears throat> evolved originally uh, to downregulate the uh, natural inflammatory reaction to the presence of an embryo, particularly an embryo that has the capability of um, of uh, uh, you know in, embed itself uh, into the tissue of the of the mother. Mm -hmm. So that already touches a bit on my next question. Why is it that the fetus is not attacked by the mother's immune system? Well, uh, I mean, that. Uh, so I, I actually believe there are two different problems that we need to recognize. The one that I just explained, I mean, the question of why 
the uh, innate, so-called innate immune system that causes inflammation, uh, regardless of whether the uh, a foreign body is uh, recognized or not, um, is, is the regulation of inflammation. So to, to make uh, clear that inflammation not necessarily has something to do with the rejection of a transplant or the rejection of, a, of an infection, uh, only think about uh, you know, an injury uh, to your leg that you know you 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 break your leg or you sprain your your ankle uh, that uh, leads to to an in internal injury, not to infection as long as the the, the skin is not broken, mm -hmm. uh, but still this um, uh, this internal injury leads to inflammatory reaction. Right, so that's the um, so it doesn't need to be a an immunological rejection of a foreign body in order to get inflammation. So that kind of inflammation that we are talking uh, talked about before is this sort of sterile inter, uh, 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 inflammation that is triggered by a damage to the tissue. Um, okay, so this is the but this is the immediate thing that happens uh, during the um, during the. Um, implantation phase. And uh, if that wouldn't be uh, regulated well, the uh, innate immune system would attack the, the embryo with certain uh, uh, cell types that have the capability of just attacking whatever causes an injury. Um, and then once this uh, uh, fetal maternal um, uh, relationship is established for long enough, uh, then potentially the um, the adaptive immune system of the mother could recognize that it's not only a, uh, a tissue injury, but there's actually a tissue injury by a tissue that is not genetically the same as its own body. And, uh, and, uh, and that is the classical uh, um, immunological paradox of, of, uh, of pregnancy. Uh, you know, pointed out or articulated uh, by uh, uh, Medawar in 1953. And there has been a lo lot of research trying to figure out what's uh, going on in the relationship between the mother and the, and the fetus to prevent that. Um, so one factor is, for instance, so all cells uh, uh, present in the body present uh, small fragments of their uh, proteins on the surface so that the immune cells can can uh, sort of taste them and, and see whether they belong to the body or not. And it is only if there's a mismatch between what the immune system expects uh, and what they find on the surface of a, of a cell, then, then the immune system starts to uh, 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 kick into action. And it turns out that uh, cells on the surface of the placenta, the ones that actually face the uh, maternal uh, bloodstream, are just not expressing these uh, uh, proteins that present the uh, peptides to the so-called uh, antigen recognizing uh, cells. So this is one way. Uh, there are other, <clears throat> other uh, mechanisms on top of it because it has to be you know tightly regulated and there's a lot of redundancy in there uh, so uh, there are you know, certain uh, molecules produced that are suppressing the um, the immune response uh, there's also evidence that the process by which <coughs> uh, uh, so-called so uh, uh, cytotoxic t-cells or the t-cells that would kill uh, cells that don't uh, show the right uh, identity. In order for them to get active, they have a, a sort of a handshake they need to uh, uh, perform, uh, uh, and that is a so-called immune checkpoint. And uh, and there are various ways how this immune checkpoint can be uh, inhibited, and that's also also happening in in the in the uh, placenta. Uh, so this so it's a quite complicated and in, uh, uh, and complex interaction network that evolved that uh, prevents um, uh, the maternal immune system to attack the, um, the, the, the placenta and thereby the fetus. Mm -hmm. So uh, just one last question. Is pl placentation in any way related to the development of malignant cancer? Um, <clears throat> 
that uh, the short answer is yes, but the real answer is complicated. Um, and um, and and that is uh, uh, for the following reason. So that <clears throat> so first of all, uh, cancer and malignant cancer existed long before there was a placenta. Right, every multicellular organism is vulnerable to developing uh, cancer because cancer essentially is the uh, breakdown of the growth control of cells in the body. Right, if you want to have a functioning multicellular body. Every cell is supposed to do its job and nothing else. Uh, but there can be mutations to these cells and then they escape this control. And that is what we usually call them a tumor. And if they grow out of control, then you know, it kills the individual. And that's true for all, for all multi multicellular organisms. Now, <clears throat> what can have changed uh, once uh, placentation in mammals has evolved is two things. Um, the one is, uh, uh, and we had discussed already, the ability of the placenta to escape the immune surveillance by the, by the mother. And, um, and one theory says that, or a class of models says that um, once um, in placental mammals, uh, the uh, the, uh, the placenta has evolved mechanisms to prevent uh, immune uh, recognition or uh, immune surveillance. These same genetic mechanisms can accidentally be turned on in a tumor. Mm -hmm. Then the tumor is no longer uh, recognizable by the immune system. And then it, uh, it uh, escapes uh, control and then you know it's more likely to be uh, fatal or malignant. Um, there is a lot of uh, sort of mechanistic evidence that supports that, that you know, because so what's going on in the uh, uh, fetal maternal interface at the placenta uh, also seems to be going on in the relationship between the um, host immune system and the tumor. Uh, the one question uh, that has not been addressed in a systematic way is the question whether animals that have no placenta have less uh, malignant cancers. Um, because that if malignancy is helped by uh, the genetic innovations that the placenta brought, that animals that don't have a placenta should be less vulnerable to um, to uh, to uh, malignancy, right? Uh, this has not been really carefully been uh, investigated, but there's sort of anecdotal evidence that that actually can be the case. <clears throat> For instance, it has been reported in the literature that it's very hard to cause uh, malignant cancers in frogs. And of course, frogs are animals that never had an, a placenta. Um, uh, but you know that's that's only anecdotal. But uh, but it is a you know at least a research question that in principle can be answered. Um, <clears throat> another uh, aspect that is uh, has to do with the evolution of placenta um, that we have uh, uh, researched uh, in my group is the question of um, uh, are different forms of placentas leading to different uh, vulnerabilities in terms of malignancy. And for that, one has to recognize that in the placental uh, mammals, <clears throat> the ancestral placental mammal had a deeply invasive uh, um, placenta, so one that deeply in, uh, embeds into the tissue of the mother. But there are quite a number of uh, uh, so-called placental mammals that where the placenta does not invade, like the cow and the Tupaya and the, and the pig and the horse and so on. <clears throat> so those are uh, animals where the uh, placenta develops, but it doesn't uh, invade uh, into the uh, tissue of the mother. Given the evolutionary evidence, our conclusion is not our, but the community's uh, conclusion is that these non-invasive placentations are actually innovations, are new inventions. Where, as it turns out, most likely the mother evolved the, uh, and the capability to keep the, uh, the fetus out of its tissue. 
right? And we know that because uh, if you take a, an embryo uh, outside its context and let it develop in the, let's say, the, the, the body cavity, uh, in the pig, for instance, it's uh, still invasive, but it's not invasive in the uterus, which means the uterus is the tissue that keeps the the, the fetus out, um, uh, prevents the fetus from invading, from you know, embedding. And what we found uh, is that in fact, uh, uh, animals where the uh, mother evolved a way to keep the placenta out are also less vulnerable to cancer spread. Um, so there's a quite uh, impressive uh, case report out of India, and it has to be out of India because it has to has to do with uh, with, uh, with cows and uh, in the US and probably also in Europe, cows don't get old; they just get slaughtered uh, uh, at a young age. Um, and only in India they are actually getting rather old. And there's a case report out of India that shows a cow with a very large melanoma-like uh, lesion, about a tumor of about maybe a, a kilogram or something like this, but no, no, uh, no metastatic uh, cancer in other parts of the body. While in a human, if the if a melanomic uh, uh, injury is about four millimeters deep, the survival rate is about 50 percent. Uh, if not treated uh, aggressively, right? So there's the very different, uh, very large differences in the likelihood that a tumor turns malignant, and that depends on how well uh, the surrounding tissue can sort of constrain uh, the tumor from uh, getting out of hand. Mm -hmm. And uh, it looks like the evolution of um, of the of a uterus that can keep the, the fetus out of uh, out of its tissue um, has so-called pleiotropic effects. I mean, coming back to this concept again, uh, on the uh, on the tissues of the rest of the body, and um, these uh, tissues, let's say in a cow, are more uh, able to uh, restrict the migration of, uh, of of tumor cells. So we have shown this uh, experimentally, and we even could. Uh, show that we can make uh, human cells more resistant to uh, invasion of, of from cancer cells if we uh, change the gene expression in these human cells to be more like cow cells. So which means that we can actually identify which uh, genes are responsible for this ability to contain the spread of a cancer. Um, and our hope is by understanding how the cow is doing it, we can eventually uh, help the human body to um, to prevent the spread of cancer um, in ways that I cannot imagine right now, but that's the, the general hope uh, of this line of research. Great. Okay, so Dr. Wagner, just before we go, where can people find your work on the internet? Uh, well, I think uh, it's uh, the easiest is to uh, uh, to just uh, uh, search for my name uh, in the in, in the in the biomedical uh, uh, database uh, NCBI uh, or PubMed uh, 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 website or uh, on my lab website at, at Yale University um, and uh, uh, much of it should be freely available uh, online. Okay, very well. So, so thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great pleasure talking to you about these things. Thank you. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. I would like to ask you to please consider supporting the channel. You will find links to Patreon and PayPal in the description box of this interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Perger Larsen, Law Guerrero, Francis Ford, Ernst Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, 
Tim Hollacy, Henry Calenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingarder, Becken, Burger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, George Pinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguenzo, Michael Stormer, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omri Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Librant, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dimitri Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Please. Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lita Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortes, my producers Isa Webb, James Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanek, Dam Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Sardis France and Thomas Trumbull, and my executive producers Michel Rogieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano and Jason Party. Thank you for all.